Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Today we have as our guest the Secretary of the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services, Cody Kinsley. Cody has been with the department since 2018, and he's been in this particular job now since uh, 2022. Cody, thank you for being with us. And uh, we'd like to start off by just uh, uh, giving our listeners a little background of all the many areas of concern that fall under your responsibility as uh, the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services. Sort of take office and give us a little background. Sounds good. Well, first off, just thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here and uh, talk a little bit about uh, all the work that we're doing to make North Carolina uh, healthy. So, you know, the department's divided into two big buckets, health and human services. Really all connects um, in its biggest form. You know, we set the rules of the road that make the healthcare system work in North Carolina. We invest in um, other things that help make people be healthy. Uh, And we also support the human services, uh, food access, et cetera, that people need to be well. Um, So more tactically, that includes um, things like our Medicaid program, which helps fund uh, care through an insurance program for people in North Carolina. It's our public health system, of course, which people are familiar with um, because of COVID uh, and making sure that water is clean and um, that communicable diseases are tracked and managed. Um, it's also about inspections of healthcare facilities and licensing them and creating them. It's about our division of child and um, early education uh, to help uh, license and manage, uh, you know, childcare centers across the state. Uh, it's our SNAP program and our WIC program to give people access to food and what people need to be healthy from an early age. Uh, it's also about our state psychiatric facilities that provide care for people with the most complex psychiatric needs in the state. All in, the department has 18,000 staff and a budget of about $28 billion. Uh, and we touch the life of every North Carolinian uh, many times uh, and often quietly with people out noticing what all with the goal of how do we make North Carolina healthy and well. Well, that's a that's a great overview. I, I, I know uh, uh, one of your responsibilities prior to becoming the uh, the secretary was to serve as the chief deputy secretary for uh, and lead in North Carolina's response for COVID nineteen. And I guess that would be a very interesting place to start because COVID-19 just sort of turned the world upside down for a couple of years and especially the areas of your concern. So tell us a little bit about what we did, how it worked out, because I think it, by all measures, North Carolina apparently did better handling COVID-19 than probably 48 states in the union, maybe 50. Um, so what did we do right and what did we learn? You know, it's always fun to get in this time machine and to go back. You know, I like to remind people in March of 2020, um, people weren't so sure what was happening outside of the country, um, but there was just some fear and uncertainty. And it was just a few weeks later that people were using hand sanitizer to wash off their bananas from the grocery store. I mean, we had a big transition there into a land of uncertainty. And that's really what COVID was. It was a lot of uncertainty 
that we progressed through and that we learned and developed responses to it. Um, and we were building towards a set of tools to allow us to manage COVID so that it doesn't manage us. Um, in the earliest days, it was about PPE and having access to the protection equipment, um, both in the healthcare setting, but then broadly that helps uh, limit transmission of disease. Um, and then once testing became available, it was about scaling access to testing. Um, and then, of course, the big breakthrough on vaccinations um, and being able to roll out a vaccination campaign and then treatment to give people access to treatment when they got um, ill and severely ill to prevent that illness. You know, for each individual um, process we went through, um, you know, we had to build out major operational things, you know, but part of what led us through all of that work was building really clear dashboards and data infrastructure to understand who we were serving, who we were reaching, how we were partnering with people um, to build a retail infrastructure unlike anything that had ever been built before. Uh, a public health system that was widely available that could touch and serve every person. And of course, we did that through a lot of partners. And I just, you know, incredibly grateful to our health system, to our public health partners, local communities, community health workers, folks that rolled up their sleeves to do whatever it took to kind of meet the need in the moment. And again, you know, we've risen to a point now where we have the tools to manage COVID so it doesn't manage us. And I'm happy to report that, you know, our COVID numbers are in a very good place, you know, and in some ways it is, um, you know, similar to other respiratory illnesses that we manage all the time. You know, it is no longer uncertain. It is no longer novel. It is known to us and we have the tools to manage it in a different way. Um, and it also reinforces the importance of being vigilant for diseases. You know, we had a smaller blip on the screen with a disease called MPOX that impacted people differently um, last year, but a lot of the same tools and process for a smaller group of folks we had to um, turn back on. And, and managing outbreaks is part of our bread and butter business. This is what we do, but this was a particularly um, frightening and large one that, again, the biggest credit goes to North Carolinians, their, their resilience to manage through this, to adapt to an evolving environment, and to do so well through it all. Well, you know, it's going to be interesting 45 or 50 years from now when you tell your children and your uh, grandchildren that there was a time where we were all lining up to take vaccine vaccine shots, and, and we couldn't wait till we got the second one. and, and uh, uh, and of course, we were all worried about uh, respirators, and of course, hospitals were overtaxed, and uh, the health professionals did an incredible job of handling it all. It was a interesting period, and I think it's a period that we kind of like want to kind of forget, but it is so important not to forget it because uh, it was uh, handled so well. Uh, it has overview nationwide, worldwide. Where does COVID stand now in other countries? Or, uh, because apparently the United States is handling it fairly well now. How about other countries across the, the, the globe? You know, what, what we're seeing um, internationally is that we've built a pretty strong immunity wall against the disease. You know, we were experiencing through Delta and Omicron and then subvariants of Omicron an evolution of the virus faster than kind of immunity would keep up with. And, and we saw these successive waves. 
the while the virus, as all viruses do, has continued to evolve, we see that our immunity is actually holding up really quite well. And so, you know, the most recent fall bivalent vaccine seems to be providing, uh, bearing out on the data, really robust protection against severe illness. Um, and we're getting closer to the kind of schedule of managing this, just like we probably are going to manage flu or as we manage flu, which is probably annual vaccines. That's not completely ironed out. I know right now we're still gathering information, but internationally we see the similar trends. People are managing this well. Um, and, and again, it's people have either earned immunity the easy way, vaccines, or they've earned it the hard way in getting sick. And um, But we're glad to to be in a very different place now than we have been. You're talking about an annual vaccine. What kind of progress is being made toward the, uh, can we expect one by next fall uh, as far as an annual vaccine or um, what What do you forecast is the possibility of when we will see uh, a uh, vaccine similar to the flu vaccine? You know, the federal government is working now on um, this information. And, you know, the FDA and the CDC has a robust process that they go through and really trying to determine the schedule. Um, you know, the good news is that the <clears throat> way these vaccines work and their ability to um, update the vaccines, you know, the, the bivalent vaccine that was used this last fall was produced very quickly. And so, you know, as we start to understand what is the most recent variant that is trans, you know, being transmitted, you know, that can be kind of plugged into this vaccine in a way that allows us to distribute it and reproduce it very quickly. So I think still uncertain exactly when we'll fall into a schedule and how frequent those shots will be recommended. Um, but it's looking like it's going in the direction of being an annual thing. Uh, I suspect we'll know in several months what that looks like. Do you think it will be done in conjunction with the flu vaccine? Will there be two shots in one day? Or do you think there will be a time difference between when you take those shots? You know, and this this is why this the schedule hasn't really been ironed out yet, because we still don't fully understand the cyclical nature of this disease. You know, we know when flu season is to the point where we say it's a season, right? It tends to be in the winter months when people go back inside. Um, as we look back at the um, nature of COVID over the last several years, we saw waves in the summer and in the winter. And so it, I would suspect that, you know, we will see waves in the winter, which would be the time to give people a vaccination in, in preparation for that, to try to stick the landing on the schedule to maximize um the protection during the most at-risk period of time. Um, and, and it has already been decided and studied that the flu vaccine and the COVID vaccines can be co-administered at the same time. So if the, if the need, right, if that ends up being the right window to give the COVID vaccine, then yeah, co-administration um, would be terrific. Uh, in the sense of just one-stop shopping, it's easy, uh, you know, kind of bogo, <laughs> if you will. Um, but uh, but again, it's not about whether it can be done. It's really more about whether it should be done, and that's still understanding what is going to become the cyclical nature of this virus as it continues to evolve and travel around the globe. You know, you still have a number of people who won't take the flu vaccine, and they're afraid 
I mean, I've had, I don't know how many people have told me, I t- you know, if you take the flu vaccine, you're likely to get flu. Well, that's it's a dead virus. It, that, that's not going to happen. Yeah, that, that's right. Unfortunately, there's still a lot of education. I mean, vaccines are the most important preventative public health tool we have. You know, again, growing up, my father used to tell me there are two ways to learn. You can learn through your own experiences or you can learn through the experiences of others, right? Learning through your own experience can be a tough thing sometimes, depending on what lesson you need to learn. Vaccines are learning through the experiences of others. You know, we can take and teach your body to have the immune response you need to have to a deadly virus without all the other bad parts of it. Vaccines are phenomenal. They have increased lifespans and save lives, you know, millions and hundreds of millions of lives around the globe. Uh, And so um, flu vaccine, COVID vaccine, measles, mumps, rubella, tuberculosis, these are viruses we don't think about anymore because of vaccines. Our guest is Cody Kinsley. He's the secretary of the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. And we'll be back to talk about other strategies and uh, priorities of the, the department right after we take time out for these messages. So you stay tuned. Okay, men, this is your time. Maybe you didn't choose this, but you're here now. You're going to go out there and be an all-star caregiver. It's up to you. So what are you going to do? You're going to go grocery shopping, cook, clean, be there emotionally and physically. You got to dig deeper. Drive them to physical therapy, doctor's appointments. Don't you forget about the pharmacy. I know you won't because that's what caregivers do. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. This is your time to show the world, your family, and yourself that you're tougher than tough. Now go out there and be the best caregiver this world has ever seen. Caregiving is tougher than tough. Find the care guides you need at aarp.org slash caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry. I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. Back with Cody Kinsley uh, here on Carolina Newsmakers, this edition. He is the uh, Secretary of the Department of uh, Health and Human Services, a job he has been in since the year 2022. And... uh, Got his undergraduate degree from Brevard College right here in Brevard, North Carolina. Where are you from originally, Cody? I grew up in Wilmington, North Carolina. My parents are still in the home that uh, I grew up in. Um, and just it's good to be in Raleigh and be able to get down there and, and visit with them. Um, we want to we, we'll talk a little bit more about your background in a, uh, another segment of the program. But right now, I want to uh, talk about mental health in North Carolina, because I think North Carolina apparently has a pretty good reputation of handling a lot of things well, but I think even the advocates for mental health say we have 
all sorts of problems and handling mental health is a very hard area to get your hands around. And, and, uh, I, I, I think it's not from lack of attention, but we just keep continue to look for real solutions. What bring us up to date on where we stand on mental health here in North Carolina? Yeah. Well, maybe I'll answer the question by actually diving a little bit into my background um, and saying that, you know, when I graduated from Brevard College, one of the first jobs I had out of college was working at a behavioral health care company in Western North Carolina. Um, this was on the other side of um, privatization of mental health care in North Carolina. Um, a lot of people who used to work in the community mental health systems had gone out to open their own businesses. And I got a job with a company to kind of help set up their operations. And we grew rapidly. Um, and it Eventually, while I was with the company, we were serving uh, tens of thousands of patients in the tri-county area around uh, Buncombe, Henderson, and Transylvania counties uh, in North Carolina. Um, you know, that was uh, really where I fell in love with health and public service in North Carolina, the vision of being able to serve people and the importance of mental health. Um, you know, I, I went away and did a bunch of other things, and we'll talk about that more later. But when I came home to North Carolina in 2018 to join the Department of Health and Human Services, it was to run the behavioral health system in recognition that way back when, when I was working in the field, it was not working, and it still is not working now. North Carolina ranks 43rd in the nation um, for behavioral health services, the average child will wait four months to see a psychiatrist. Um, you know, just last week we had 300 and, and on any given day, we will have 350 people waiting in emergency departments for care. Um, we have uh, dozens of children sleeping in DSS offices and waiting for behavioral health care. I mean, we have failed this population. And as we've come out of the pandemic where we are, you know, we've seen a doubling in suicide rates um, over the last two decades. And as we've come out of COVID, um, you know, it's clear that, you know, mental health is something that we are all touched by. I see a silver lining in that uh, we're breaking through stigma in a way that we have never done before. The fact that you and I are talking about this and other people are talking about it, there's less shame. Um, but the services aren't there. It's great not to have the shame, but we have got to build the services. That's why I'm thrilled that just last week, um, the governor and my department launched a billion-dollar investment plan for behavioral health in North Carolina to really rebuild and reinvest in something that has never been there. Um, we have There is no health without behavioral health, and this is a huge area of growth for us. Just basically, what? how broad is the behavioral health? When we talk about behavioral health, I think people immediately jump to people saying, well, uh, psychotic or, or whatever. But it also includes people that have uh, that function very well in everyday life but have a particular area where they have problems. I mean, it is a very broad area, lots of different areas. How do you, I, how do you cut those many areas? I pre I appreciate this question. You know, I like to say, <clears throat> so I'll give you a statistic to start. So, you know, one in five people will have a diagnosable mental illness in a given year. 
um, whether that's transitional depression or anxiety um, in a given year, 20% is a huge number of people. But I like to say, while one in five people will have a mental illness in a given year, five in five people have mental health. Um, Just like overall wellness and eating right and exercise and taking care of your body, you know, preventative care and good coping mechanisms are important for maintaining your outlook in life and being healthy and well from a mental perspective. So, yeah, we've got a spectrum of what mental health looks like. On one end, you've got, you know, feelings of isolation and, and stress that begin to evolve into feelings of depression and anxiety and then more severe levels of depression, anxiety to the point where it's limiting your ability to interact, to maintain work, to be in society, to maintain friends, and then more progressive serious illness that looks like, you know, acute schizophrenia and other types of serious mental health issues. And and remember throughout that entire spectrum as well, substance use disorder is the other piece of the puzzle that fits into what equals behavioral health. Mental health plus substance use disorder equals behavioral health. And so you've got, you know, mild addiction issues and misuse of alcohol or other substances, and then more progressive and serious addiction issues that, again, prevent you. Throughout that spectrum, uh, our ability to cope, our you know, genetic dispositions, our early experiences in life kind of are what make us move across that spectrum in different ways. What our efforts are, are to A, do the right preventative things that help people stay on the lighter end of that spectrum to have good healthy coping mechanisms, good investments at an early age that put people on a path to be well across their lifespan but then also to provide treatment interventions when they start to get um, higher levels of need up that spectrum to try to get them back to a place where they're healthy and well. It's it's a range of promotion and telling people what mental health is, but then also intervention as well. Well, I think we've all, uh, at least in my generation, and I'm in the boomer generation, uh, we came up thinking there was always a pill for everything. There should be a pill for everything. And there are some medicines that are very effective in the mental health area. My my brother, by the way, was a psychiatrist. But the the other area, of course, is a lot of mental health problems can only be solved by counseling. And and um, counseling is very expensive and uh, time consuming. Uh, uh, I think one of the complaints I hear from doctors is that the insurance companies want to push solving the problems with pills and prescriptions instead of the more costly ways of handling it. Would you uh, comment on that? You know, I would say that um, there have been great advancements in science over the last um, several years uh, beyond just medications and pill form, long-acting injectables that can help treat some of the most complex uh, disease. Um, but but there's also, you know, evidence-based value and treatment methodologies um, that make a real difference in giving people the skills that they need to do well. And there's, there's also, you know, public health ways that we can teach those skills, whether it's um, certain coping mechanisms, et cetera, that you may learn in therapy, what that looks like in kind of broader public health campaigns. 
Um, you know, and so it's really, you know, we have to have the full suite of interventions to make a difference. Uh, medication alone won't do everything that we want it to do. The third piece of that stool, right, if we think about it as a three-legged stool, the third piece of it is just the things that help people be well overall. It is very hard to have good mental health if you are experiencing homelessness. If you have a housing challenge, if, if you don't have access to food, if you are consistently stressed because you're struggling to get employed, you know, mental illness has been in a little bit of a of a broken cycle where, you know, if you're mentally ill and struggling to um, be well, it may be hard to maintain work. And if you can't maintain work and support yourself and your family, you can become more mentally ill. And so, you know, investing in those things that help foundationally people be well also make a difference. Um, you know, all of that to say that um, mental health and mental illness is a disease. It is not a moral failing. There are proven and evidence-based treatments that work and recovery happens. And it's about, um, you know, making those investments. And, and I'm really happy that during COVID, we saw a lot of health insurers um, really open up the tap on increasing access to services, uh, whether that's increasing access to telehealth or um, building um, more uh, access in their network. Um, I think that, you know, and they understand what we know in the evidence, which is that when people can manage their mental health, the cost for their other care goes down. People with um, unmanaged mental illness that also have diabetes, their diabetes will cost more to manage because of their unmanaged mental health, because they won't be able to maintain access to the medications they need to take, and they won't have motivation to maintain their glucose levels. Um, and we see this in other chronic diseases. When we tackle mental health, we not only save money on other physical health issues, but we also save money in making people more productive and healthier, reducing the rates of violence and other problems. Mental health is a smart investment across the board and trying to save money by not investing in certain treatments is penny wise and pound foolish. Well, you're exactly right because uh, uh, mental health can lead to crimes and and things of this nature. I noticed in the notes that Jason gave me, our producer gave me, said behavioral health and resilience. That's an interesting word. Tell, expand on that a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, resilience goes back to this idea that, you know, people, um, you know, can, well, well, think about my experience growing up in Wilmington, North Carolina, right? I wasn't going to stop the hurricane, but my ability to, you know, spring back from it is a measure of my resilience. Right. I think recognition that traumatic things are going to happen and our ability to rebound from them is how we make people resilient. And the way that you do that is you give people um, exposure to healthy coping mechanisms and resources that help them build a track record um, to to spring back. You know, <clears throat> one of the statistics I was most interested in during COVID was we saw a tripling in the rates of reported anxiety um, and depression or stress and loneliness among individuals. So in a given week, usually one in nine people will say, I'm feeling stressed or I'm feeling lonely. Um, during the first six months of COVID, we saw that number go to one in three. 
from one and nine. But what's interesting is that that was disproportionately felt among our youngest North Carolinians. So while we had a disease that was disproportionately impacting our older North Carolinians, it was actually our younger folks that felt most of the mental health impacts because of it. And, you know, what bears out in in the data is that it's because of a lack of resiliency, right? When you see the adults in your life struggling to manage this huge amount of uncertainty and you don't have a prior experience that you can ground yourself in as, gosh, I got through that and so I'm going to get through this, um, you know, that's very upsetting. And that, again, goes back to our conversation on COVID, which is coming out the other side of it. Gosh, North Carolina is such a much more resilient place. Interesting. Right. Cody Kinsley is our guest. He's the secretary of the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. We'll be back with more. Why don't we take time out for these messages on Carolina Newsmakers? No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, don't tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Watch out! You got me! The galaxy is safe once again. In the pretend universe, kids play with pretend guns. In the real world, it's up to us to make sure they don't get their hands on a real gun. If you have a gun in the house, keep it locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Safe gun storage saves lives. Learn how to make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. That's nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by N Family Fire, Brady, and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers with Cody Kinsley, the Secretary of the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. As we said, he got his undergraduate degree from Brevard College, and then he went all the way out to the University of California at Berkeley to get his master's in public policy from the University of California at Berkeley. And we're so glad that you came back to North Carolina and so glad that you are here to lead our department. Let's talk about uh, opioids. And, uh, you know, that's one of those things that got on the front burner, got off the front burner, is back on the front burner again. Where do we stand? with that, because at one time we were talking about that being a crisis. Is it still on the crisis level? Yeah. Well, I will say that opioids never left my front burner. I mean, I think that, you know, in the in the public sphere, it got um, a little clouded by obviously the focus on COVID. But, you know, we ensured during our response to COVID that we continued to um, reach people. And, and we made a lot of changes in our system of care to make sure that people could still get the treatment that they needed as they were in recovery from um, opioids. Tragically, though, um, we actually saw um, 
from 2021 to 2022, a 22% increase in overdoses, I'm sorry, a 22% increase in deaths um, from COVID, a 40% increase in overdoses. Um, and so while we were still investing huge amounts of resources in battling the opioid epidemic during the middle of a pandemic, um, we still lost ground in that fight. Um, you know, one, so much of it related to the fact that um, people lost access to work and traditions and a lot of the stress of the pandemic pushed people, you know, we saw at the same period of time increases in alcohol sales while bars were closed. We saw increases in other indicators of substance use disorder growing. Um, and so, you know, that was headwinds against us. Um, and, and now, of course, this has become even more complicated by um, by the fact that we have fentanyl as part of the equation. You know, fentanyl um, is so incredibly deadly and um, people are overdosing at much higher rates. So we have been investing even more in naloxone, the, the overdose reversal drug and giving people access to treatment. Uh, and this actually brings me to something that's timely in the moment. I am so happy that North Carolina is moving forward with Medicaid expansion. I mean, we spend uh, tens of millions of dollars of federal money every year to give people access to, to treatment for substance use disorder. It's a chronic disease. It's a long-term cost. It's a long-term investment, but it's a drop in the bucket compared to what we need to do. Medicaid expansion um, will help give those individuals access to treatment, a path to recovery, a path to work and a path to self-sustainment and their own health insurance to fund their recovery over time, you know, and, and lacking it, we have not been able to meet the need. And this is where Medicaid expansion is a particular game changer. So what are some of the strategies in trying to attack this problem? Well, you know, we've got a, a great uh, opioid action plan and a data um, dashboard that we track our work against. Um, but it really breaks down to, you know, managing access. Um, we've done that through our controlled substance reporting system and trying to limit overprescribing. Um, you know, obviously our law enforcement partners have a particular role with illicit um, substances and minimizing access to that. Um, second, it's about, you know, stopping deaths, right? So giving people um, access to the tools they need from a harm reduction perspective, whether that's through syringe exchanges, um, or uh, naloxone, you know, if people are going to be using, uh, we want to try to limit their overall risk and try to give them opportunities to, to come into recovery. Investing in peers, this has been a huge area of success for North Carolina. You know, we've taken individuals that are in recovery um, and we've trained them as peer support specialists, and then we've funded them to do work in emergency departments and in other places because, you know, if you overdose, um, and you end up in emergency department, and then you're kind of coming out of your overdose in that moment, you know, then there's a someone who has been where you are, standing next to you, holding your hand, and talking you through what could be your next step to try to get on a path to recovery. And who better to help you there than someone who's walked the walk already. Uh, and then funding treatment. I, I'm thrilled 
for the opioid settlement money and the work that the attorney general has done to really bring a huge amount of resources into North Carolina, you know, through Medicaid expansion, we can try to, we can fund treatment. And with those dollars going to local communities, they can invest in housing and employment supports and all the things that we know sustain recovery over time to really help communities heal in a transformative way. We have a ways to go. The strategy is clear. We just have to kind of stay to it and continue to push forward together. I guess no program on health would be complete without talking about something that's been around for a long time, and that's tobacco use. But now we've got vaping also involved. Where do we stand in those two areas? Are we making progress? You know, we have seen a, um, well, overall tobacco use in North Carolina has been relatively flat and slightly decreasing. We have seen increases among youth. And um, you mentioned vaping. That is definitely um, part of it. Um, you know, bottom line is that tobacco is an incredibly unhealthy substance. And it's kind of public health 101 to um, try to help ha- give people the tools to never start and to quit if they have start. You know, we recently announced, uh, you know, a modernization to our quit line, which is an evidence-based tool that helps people um, get the support they need to quit smoking. Um, and, you know, circling back to behavioral health, people with serious mental illness have an average expected lifespan of 25 years less than the average person. Um, much of that has to do with smoking, among other complications um, that are often prevalent in that population. Uh, and so um, by helping people have the tools to be healthy and well and make their choices, uh, that is a cornerstone of public health. Well, you know, we go back to the day and age where uh, you, you look at the old sitcoms on television and you even see Andy Griffith pull out a cigarette, smoke on the Andy Griffith show. It was uh, far more accepted, far more ex- almost expected that you would smoke. Uh, so we've come a long way from that point, at least. And uh, But vaping is another problem, especially uh, with those charges that uh, some of those companies were aiming at uh, the youth market. Well, and, that, and that's what I worry the most about, right? You know, I, I think that you know, it's one thing for uh, adults to make decisions. And, you know, and, and so much of what a public health approach is, is about giving people the tools and the information they need to make good choices for their own health and well-being um, and layering those approaches to to try to help save people's lives and promote overall health and well-being. But when we have organizations that specifically target children with advertising and bubblegum flavors and, you know, things that make it look cool, et cetera, that's super concerning. And the health ramifications are huge, right? Early, you know, brain development, overall lifespan, health and well-being are hugely impacted by teenagers that are, in, you know, smoking and vaping. And um, and so that that is a, an area of focus for us at the department, we want to prevent adolescent abuse of these substances. Um, and we also know it gets, you know, it interacts with the overall mental health situation as well. You know, there's a lot of 
peer pressure dynamics and other things that are happening. You know, we funded $3.2 million for collegiate recovery programs in colleges across um, North Carolina. Uh, you know, we know that college in high school and college age is a period when people experiment with substances. We want to give people the tools they need to um, both, you know, not experiment if they don't want to, but then if they're in a place where they're sober to be in a place where they're accepted for it. And so collegiate recovery programs are incredibly important because, you know, uh, certain spaces can be times when you go from, uh, you know, experimenting to to all out addiction uh, and whether that's to vaping or alcohol or, or other substances, we want to give people the tools to be well. I have a friend that uh, said one time that uh, he thought we didn't push abstinence near enough. He said, you know, if you don't try something, you'll never know what you miss. You might like it. So why not Why try it in the first place? And I thought that was very good advice. Let's talk a little bit about underage drinking of alcohol, because I understand that uh, alcohol can have a negative effect on the, the growth of the brain at uh, early ages. Is that true? You know, there is a gr growing amount of evidence uh, around just the long term negative effects of alcoholism. Or I'm sorry, the negative effects of alcohol, whether that's um, you know, cancer causing aspects for anybody and any consumption level um, and negative impacts early in age. One of the things I also really worry about is that for many people, alcohol use becomes the only coping mechanism that they have for dealing with stress and other problems. And, and that in line, you know, people with mental health issues often have co-occurring substance use disorders because that becomes their primary coping strategy. Um, and that goes back to, you know, we can tackle alcohol abuse head on, but the other way we can tackle it is by investing in mental health resources that give people healthier coping mechanisms. And so, yes, we, and, and we've seen, you know, some tragic um, loss of life among young and college age students um, because of substance abuse, uh, and and that's a you know particularly dangerous thing. Well, it's uh, it's been like alcohol, uh, the use of uh, like tobacco, the use of alcohol has been a long range problem, and we are continuing to learn from it. Uh, what programs do we have that uh, are in effect that uh, are aimed at cutting down on underage drinking and use of alcohol? Well, I go right back to our collegiate recovery program and um, other, you know, kind of early intervention and education programs in in the high school setting. I mean, these are, you know, public health awareness campaigns. Um, obviously, you know, uh, North Carolina also has a gold standard when it comes to alcohol, which is the ABC system, you know, to have a state regulated um, uh, sales program that limits access you know, that this is the model nationally for limiting, uh, you know, illicit access to that um, as well. So th there's a lot of um, those kind of layered tools that work together. So much of this goes back to the college age. And of course, uh, that is a period of time where people are leaving the influence of their home and getting out of their own. And, and so they find themselves free to make decisions. Uh, so I guess it gets back to you've got a good chance 
between ages six and 12 to put good sense into people. Is that, is that a good statement? Is that a fair statement? Well, I think that we have a chance to put good sense into people anytime. Uh, and, um, and, and, I, and again, like what our approach is, how do we give people um, the tools that they need to make wise and smart choices for themselves? Uh, and I think whether that's substance use disorder or beyond, that's been a big um, priority for us. But, you know, alcohol is the third leading preventable cause of death in North Carolina. Uh, and so, but again, I like to think about this in the context of broader substance use, and I like to think about it in the context of mental health. How do we invest in the resources for people to be well overall? Our guest is Cody Kinsley. He is the Secretary of the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. We have one final segment coming up, and we want to talk about the uh, current session of the General Assembly and what some of your priorities are as far as seeking funding. And we'll do that when we return right after these messages. As an 18-year-old, I let my mistakes kind of take over my life. I was 0.5 credits away from completing high school, and I didn't do it. Ten years later, at age 28, Jackie finished her high school diploma. When I found out that I was pregnant, I know that I had to do something for myself if I wanted to make her a better person and provide a better life for her. My family never stopped pushing for me to be better because they knew what I could become and who I could become as a person. My support team is amazing. The educational director, my sister, and even my seven-year-old daughter has just been more than the support that I could ask for. I've been given an opportunity, and I'm just thankful for it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo. GOAT, G O A T, acronym, stands for greatest of all time. As in spaghetti sandwiches for dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the GOAT. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest is Cody Kinsley. We've had a very interesting program talking about the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services, which he is the... uh, uh, serving now as the secretary of that department. We talked earlier in the first segment about uh, COVID-19 and the lessons we learned. And if you missed that segment, you might want to go back and listen to it uh, by going to carolinanewsmakers.com. We'll talk about that later on. But uh, right now, as we promised at the end of the last session, the General Assembly is in action. And of course, they're working on the budget. And uh, you've got lots of needs and lots of wants and lots of things to worry about. So what are some of your priorities and where do you think the General Assembly is going with those priorities uh, at, at this point in the game? Well, I'll start with the one that we probably spent the most time talking about, which is behavioral health and resilience. I mean, I have been traveling across the state with uh, Senator Jim Bergen, uh, who is one of our chairs um, for uh, health and health appropriations in the Senate. 
um, and we've been joined by countless other legislators everywhere we go doing mental health town halls. Uh, I, I don't go over to the legislature without hearing people talk about the importance of mental health time and time again, whether it's uh, investing in children and their mental health or adults. Uh, I think everybody's been touched by this, and so I am uh, hoping for some really once-in-a-generation investments in mental health. And, you know, the governor has outlined his recommendations of what that should look like and, and our billion-dollar plan. Again, encourage people to look at that. Um, but, you know, from increasing rates to shoring up the crisis system to giving people a place to go when they're in crisis and preventing behavioral health illnesses in the first place, there's so much more we can be doing in North Carolina and we need to do in North Carolina. It's a smart investment for people. The second, talking about, yeah, go, go right there. Oh, please continue. Uh, the the second big area for us is supporting child and family well-being, and so in addition to the mental health aspects for children, you know, early intervention for kids, you know, supporting early education and high quality early education, which is a triple play. It helps people be. It helps kids have. Um, uh, health across their lifespan. It helps parents work and it helps businesses thrive. Um, you know, closing the gap. You know, we see uh, black babies dying two and a half times more often than white babies um, in childbirth. Closing that infant mortality gap is a big investment for us. Making sure that kids at a young age have access to food, an essential building block for health and well-being. So those are big um, priorities for us this session. And then last, but certainly not least, is really investing in our caregiving workforce, whether that's nurses or healthcare providers, childcare um, workers or direct support professionals um, to serve individuals with disabilities. And of course, our own staff at the department, we have a 28% vacancy rate. Um, you know, these are huge investments for us. So we've got a lot of priorities, um, but again, I'm very hopeful there's a lot of shared um, voice among people in the recognition. You know, our healthcare system stepped up and saved lives over the last several years. We got to pay it forward and reinvest in that so we can have a healthy future ahead. We touched earlier on Medicaid expansion, which is going to occur in North Carolina. Uh, go back over just how important that is and how many dollars are going to be involved from the federal government that uh, other states have had the benefit of for some time. Now we will. <clears throat> you know, I like to say for Medicaid expansion, the dollars just make sense. And we're talking about about $8 billion a year of federal money at no additional state taxpayer cost coming into North Carolina. Uh, $4.8 billion for um, insurance coverage for about 600,000 people. Uh, and then another $3.5-ish billion dollars for shoring up the hospitals and the safety net. Think about what that would do for rural health. Think about what that would do for healthcare businesses that are currently serving people that don't have insurance. You know, I think back to my own life. I grew up in North Carolina without health insurance. I know firsthand the experiences of going to a um, provider on a sliding scale of watching my parents struggle with the decision on when to take me to the doctor. Um, these are challenges that 1.2 million people in North Carolina face every day. Medicaid expansion would draw so much resource into North Carolina. Um, 
or the health system that we're going to invest in making people better. Uh, and most importantly, I think about the the 600,000 stories that will change with it. And I'm so happy to um, see it moving forward and I look forward to getting it done. You know, one of the problems I'm sure you wrestle with every day is the fact that North Carolina is really two states. We have the very progressive uh, 20 or so counties that uh, have great hospitals and great medical attention within say an hour of time, many cases much closer than that. But then we have a large part of the state where they are a long way away from really good hospitals, uh, really good health care. How do you uh, how do you see that uh, uh, being attended to in a way that makes even the people in the most remote parts of the state uh, uh, giving them more access to good health care? You know, <clears throat> starting with Medicaid expansion, I mean. We see in states that have expanded Medicaid less closure of rural hospitals. North Carolina has had 10 rural hospitals closed in the last decade. Um, and just a few weeks ago, ECU Health and the, well, a few months ago, ECU Health in the eastern part of the state closed five outpatient clinics. Um, Medicaid expansion will help change that dynamic to keep those businesses in place. Um, but you're right, we need to expand care. Part of that is with the opportunity to innovate with telehealth. The governor has made, you know, um, real signature leadership investments uh, in expanding access to broadband across the state. Um, and we know people that may see their primary care doctor um, in their hometown, but they may see a specialist in Charlotte. Uh, and instead of driving two hours, they can do it via telehealth, um, which is phenomenal. It doesn't solve every problem, but it begins to stretch the web of access. North Carolina is the second most rural state in the country as far as number of population in towns that are rural. And, you know, telehealth is a great strategy for expanding access um, to care. Um, we also invested during COVID when we had federal money to do this. We purchased mobile vans to do access to care mobily, whether that's substance use disorder treatment, behavioral, diabetes screenings, early primary care and prevention services, um, you know, expanding the web of access for those individuals um, as well. So, you know, there is definitely more to do in this space. Rural health is a big priority for us at the department across all of our efforts. Um, and it and it touches, um, you know, every North Carolinian. We started out this segment talking about your uh, goals with the General Assembly. And we've mentioned just a few, including that billion dollar uh, plan that you have. What other priorities do you have at the General Assembly that might not necessarily involve money, but involve policy? I mean, I think that my, my mind immediately goes to, gosh, there's so many. Um, and so trying to, to focus in, um, you know, there are a number of things that we need to do in our behavioral health system, but my mind actually immediately goes to foster youth. Um, you know, we've had an increased number of children enter the foster care system um, and 
we really need to rethink how that system works in North Carolina, in particular, how foster youth and um, get behavioral health services. Uh, the department has proposed moving from um, a regional-based way that those kids are served into a statewide-based way. Um, we need to have one focused provider and you know plan of providers that serve them. Um, and that's a dynamic change that has been, you know, mildly controversial, but, you know, it bears out in the data. We've got 175 kids that are currently getting treatment outside of North Carolina. We have dozens of foster youth sleeping in DSS offices. Um, we've got uh, another dozens of foster youth that are languishing in emergency departments. Uh, North Carolina is not doing right by these kids. And while we have made real investments and we have made changes to date, uh, we know that there is more to do and we're eager to work with the House and the Senate to make the structural change to put forward a foster care plan that serves these kids in a more cohesive way. Well, I would imagine that when you talk to the General Assembly members, when you talk in terms of these numbers, and in some cases the numbers don't sound all that big, but I would imagine the response you get from most legislators, if not all, is one is too many. One is too many. That's that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, when we're talking about hundreds, that can feel small, but you know, hundreds of plane crashes, <laughs> you know, that to me it's it's a relative thing. I don't want one kid sleeping in an ED. And when I'm talking about sleeping in an emergency department, I'm talking about sleeping on a mattress in the floor. You know, this is not a treatment, therapeutic, supportive environment, you know, and with the, you know, 12 to 14,000 foster youth in North Carolina, we can do better. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was with an organization called SASO, um, which is uh, about um, foster youth self-advocating for their own future. And I was so inspired by these young young kids and young adults that have grown up in the foster system and who are you know such a bright part of North Carolina's future um, and investing in them is a no-brainer for us for our long-term economic health and well-being and for their long-term well economic health and well-being and you know we have got to do better by these kids. Well, you've got about 45 seconds to answer this question. We've talked about all sorts of things, ranging from the opioid crisis to the tobacco and alcohol use to behavioral health and mental health and so forth. Now you've got about 35 seconds as I'm taking too much time in this question. What is your number one priority tomorrow? What are you worried? What are you? What's number one on your list tomorrow? Well, I would say until the vote earlier today it was get Medicaid expanded, but I guess I will stick with it and say, get Medicaid expanded, get it implemented. It is foundational to everything that we need to do in North Carolina. Well, you took less time than I wanted you to take, but that's just great. We, Our guest has been Cody Kinsley. And as I said, we've talked about all sorts of the areas of the Department of Health and Human Services, of which he serves as secretary. And I would suggest strongly, if you missed part of this broadcast, to go back to carolinanewsmakers.com and listen to the entire broadcast again. Uh, one of the most interesting segments was what we learned from the COVID-19 crisis and how North Carolina reacted to that. Very interesting program. And Cody, we certainly appreciate you taking time to be with us. Again, if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, 
You can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and do just that. The program has been produced by Jason Cog, and he'll have another guest for us next week. So the next week, same time, same station. Have a good week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.